Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Ship show. There is an old Wall Street adage, sell in May and go away. And the reason for that saying is that seasonally, the market tends to produce better returns in the first four months of the year, uh, January through April. And then historically, beginning in May and throughout the summer, the market could generally go down and I think the time to buy back in is typically September, October-ish. You know, there's a lot of big down days, uh, down months, September, October, big crashes have been. So kind of get out of the market in May, uh, go away, and then come back later in the year and buy back what you sold. Well, today was May 1st, and it looked like a lot of people weren't uh, going to wait that long, and they were quick to sell. They were selling right out of the open. Uh, May 1st, the market gapped down, at least the Dow, and the Dow was down all day. At at the worst, it was down better than 300 points, uh, but it paired its losses significantly, closed down just 64. But the NASDAQ, which was never actually down that much, even when the Dow was down 300, I think it was only down about 20, 25, the NASDAQ ended up positive 64, and uh, the S&P was up just under 7 points. So, but... Stocks were under pressure all day long. Uh, the markets were down. I think maybe the turnaround in Facebook, Facebook ended up a couple of percent. Mark Zuckerberg uh, was announcing what they were doing uh, to try to clamp down. I think he said they were going to have 20,000 people working in compliance or something. I mean, I, I don't know. Does he have to hire all these people or is he just going to divert them from something that they're already doing? They also announced that they were going to go into the dating business. Uh, which I'm surprised it's taken Facebook so long uh, to get into that space. It seems such an obvious fit. I mean, they already have everybody's profile. In fact, there's a lot of fake profiles on Facebook that people use in dating scams. I know this because a lot of women, and I've talked about this on prior podcasts, but it's been going on for years where people put up uh, profiles on Facebook 
and they make up a name and then they use photographs of me, me with my kids or at my house or with my dog. And then they approach elderly women, usually overweight and unattractive. Uh, they seem to be the easiest target. And they scam money out of them under the pretense of falling in love with them uh, over the Internet. But they always have these fake uh, Facebook profiles. And, I, you know, I, when I notice them, I, you know, I report them and try to get Facebook to, to remove them. But there's, I mean, who knows how many there are? I mean, it's not just my pictures uh, that these con guys are using to scam women out of money. There's probably hundreds of people, but a lot of people use mine. I mean, my, my pictures are out there. There's a lot of pictures of me on the Internet. So I suppose it's easy to build up a fake profile with Peter Schiff uh, uh, photographs. So I think some of the other online uh, sites, the sites that have, you know, I forget the name of the company, they own um, uh, Match and uh, Fish in the Sea and I don't know, a bunch of these other dating websites. I think they're all falling because now it's like, you know, Amazon stepping into your market, right? If Facebook is going to go in uh, to dating, I don't know why, you know, Amazon is probably going to get in there too at some point. Amazon does everything else, but the market kind of turned around. Maybe that's what lifted the NASDAQ. I don't know, but to me, it was a weekday. The market was generally under pressure. There was a lot of selling. Uh, the Dow did manage to hold on to the 24,000 mark. We were well below it. We were close to uh, 23,800. But when it's really going to get interesting is when the Dow gets down to 20,000. I think that's where we're headed. By then, it's in a bear market. And then the Federal Reserve can no longer pretend that it's not worth Because once we're in a bear market... There's a pretty good indication that that's a leading indicator of recession. You know, by the way, I think officially today, this recovery is now the second longest recovery in history. Prior to that, the second longest recovery was in the 1960s. So we've now surpassed that. But in order to break the record, we're going to have to continue until I think July of next year. Right? That's, you know, that's like another year. But that recovery was in the 1990s. And, you know, the Fed pulled out all the stops during the 1990s to keep the recovery going. Right? And, uh, of course, it culminated in a very shallow recession, 2001-2002, because the Fed uh, kicked the can down the road, slashed interest rates to 1%. And, you know, inflated the housing bubble or and the housing bubble was already going. You know, by the way, the housing bubble didn't start when the dot com bubble popped. Both bubbles were, were being inflated simultaneously. It's just that when the stock bubble popped, all the air went into the housing bubble and the Fed was able to buy, you know, that recovery or that phony recovery that didn't blow up until 2008. But if you compare the amount of stimulus that the Fed threw at the economy this time around, it dwarfs the amount of stimulus that Greenspan poured into the economy during the 1990s. And of course, there are some other positive factors about the 1990s. The budget deficits actually shrank. They were actually quite low. In fact, statistically, they managed to manufacture a couple of surpluses, which were not real. I mean, the national debt went up every year that we supposedly had a surplus. But they found a way to cook the books to make it at least look like a surplus. And they were talking about paying off the national debt. So you had some positive things that were going on in addition to the Fed throwing a lot of cheap money into the economy, although not cheap by today's standards, just cheap by normal standards. I mean, we're, we've gone 
well beyond normal. We, you know, we've gone into the twilight zone of monetary policy under Ben Bernanke, Janet Yellen, and now Jerome Powell. So there's nothing that you can compare to. But the recovery that has been produced, and I always put the term recovery in quotes because it's not really a recovery, right? It's, uh, it's just a, a bubble masquerading as recovery. But they've been able to engineer the second longest recovery in history, but it's required the most amount of stimulus in history, the biggest amount of deficit spending, the most amount of money printing, and of course, busts are normally proportionate to the booms that precede them. The only reason that didn't happen in 2001 was because of the extraordinary measures that the Fed undertook, and but we got we got that recession in 2008. We just it was delayed, but based on the amount of stimulus that we've had in this boom, this is going to be the mother of all busts. That's why I say it's going to be we're going to die of you know a monetary overdose. So that's going to happen when they try to stimulate the economy back uh, from this massive recession, which is going to be impossible. You know, another reason, too, that I I don't think it's a recovery is I don't believe the economy is actually bigger now than it was when the recovery began. I don't believe any of these GDP numbers. I think that the inflation rate is being understated, and I think the economy has, in fact, contracted. In fact, I read an interesting article on the internet that compared the GDP to the price of a Big Mac. You know, and a lot of people look at the Big Mac index and they kind of use it as a measure of purchasing power parity. They look at what a Big Mac costs in various countries to try to determine, you know, whether they think currencies are overvalued or undervalued. But this is the first time I saw the GDP expressed uh, in terms of a hamburger. And so what the article did is it took the value of the U.S. GDP, you know, when the recovery began and divided it by the price of a of a, of a Big Mac and then took today's GDP and divided it by the price of a Big Mac. And according to that index, the U.S. economy is smaller today than it was back then because it's worth fewer Big Macs, right? So if you just figure out how many hamburgers the U.S. GDP can buy today versus what it bought when the recovery began, we buy fewer. And what that means, obviously, is that the price of a Big Mac has gone up a lot faster than the U.S. GDP. And I think that Big Mac probably gives you a pretty good estimate of the overall rate of inflation because it's not just food right a big mac is not just you know two all beef patties special sauce lettuce cheese pickles onions and a sesame seed bun and that tells you how good that ad was from the 1970s that i can still remember it uh that's the mark of a, of a good ad but it's not just the ingredients right because you've got rent that's incorporated in a McDonald's. You've got transportation because everything has to be delivered by trucks. You've got energy, the energy to transport the stuff, to cook the stuff, utilities, local taxes, wage rates, minimum wage, right? All that stuff. So is all factored in to the price of a hamburger. And so obviously the GDP deflator is not nearly big enough to offset for the costs that are embedded in that Big Mac because the Big Mac doesn't lie. The price is the price. And you can see the hamburger ain't changing. So what's changing is the cost of creating it. And that's because the value of our money is going down. That's because we have inflation. I already mentioned on last week's podcast, the only reason that the GDP numbers beat estimates for Q1 was because the inflation rate was so much less than what everybody expected. But the whole thing is a lie. You know, by the way, on Monday, uh, the Atlanta Fed's model came out with its first estimate for Q2 GDP. 4.1. I mean, I don't know how this formula was set up. 
so that you always start out before they have any data. They're at a really high number. I mean, where do they get that high number every time? And then, of course, they have to walk it down. You know, they were at 5.4 for Q1 and, you know, and they had to walk it all the way down to two. You would think that the model would be tweaked. I mean, if every time your model started up way high and then you had to constantly ratchet it down, you might think, hey, there's something wrong. We're getting too big an estimate right out of the gate. Maybe we ought to tweak this model a little bit so that we try to get a more accurate forecast of GDP at the beginning. You know, not just, you know, at the very end, but obviously there's something in there. The default is a really big number. It's like until they see any data, they just somehow assume a really big number. I wonder if having a low number, you know, for the last quarter, they just assume that it's going to it's going to show up in the next quarter. But I think if you actually look at the last quarter and again, a lot of that was due to inventory that's not being sold, you would think that that bodes ill for a second quarter GDP. And also, especially if you look at the income numbers and the personal spending numbers and, and all of that. In fact, by the way, we got uh, personal income and spending for March, which again, that's back in Q1. And this probably is going to weigh down Q1 and maybe they'll revise it lower. But they took the personal income number down. It was originally reported as up 0.4 and they revised it to up just 0.3. And for March, it was supposed to be up 0.4, and they made it up 0.3. So February and March were both, you know, income was 25% lower than what we thought. The spending numbers also, consumer spending from uh, February was revised from up 0.2 to zero. Now, it was supposed to be up 0.4 this time in March, and it was up 0.4, but it was up, it was up 0.4 from zero not from up 0.2. So spending is down, income is down. Of course, since income went didn't go up as much as spending in March, the savings rate again went down. So if consumers have less savings, their income is suffering. You know, we've seen these really really weak retail sales numbers. I mentioned where imports are declining, uh, credit, you know, credit card uh, was, was falling. So if consumers aren't borrowing and they're not importing, they're not spending, their income is down, their savings are down. If personal spending is 70% of GDP, you think if you were trying to forecast Q2, you would come up with a much lower number than 4.1% out of the gate. Now, I know you get a lot of these ridiculous economists, right? They always want to make lemonade out of lemons, right? And they always talk about how savings being down is good, right? Because th- this is how they spin it. They say, look, when the consumer is confident because the economy is good and job prospects are good, they go out and borrow a lot of money and buy stuff, right? So this is, oh yeah, that makes sense, right? When people are confident, they take on more debt. And when they're worried, they rein everything in. They hunker down, right? They want to save, right? But that's not reality, right? That's not how it works. I mean, there's an expression saving for a rainy day, right? What does that mean? That means you don't save when it's raining. You save when the sun is shining, right? That's the idea. So the sun is shining on you when things are going well, when the economy is going good, you got a good job, you're making money. That's when you set aside your emergency funds so that when things turn down, when it rains, you got your rainy day fund. The idea that you just blow everything when it's sunshine and then when it rains, you start saving. Save what? You're out of work. You got to save when... You're making money, not when you've lost your job. That's not when you start saving. That's when you 
rely on your savings. That's when you draw down your savings. The fact that Americans are drawing down their savings now when the economy is supposedly great, what does that tell you? That tells you that the economy is not great. That's why people aren't saving. That's why people are having to deplete their savings because they can't make ends meet with their current income, which is what you would have if the economy was good. I mean, look, I mean, I think I've used this analogy before, but let's say you ran into a friend of yours that you hadn't seen in a long time. And you just asked your friend, hey, how you doing? And then your friend said, well, let me tell you, I've maxed out all my credit cards. I took out a, a second home equity loan on my house. I borrowed against my 401k. Uh, and I just been, you know, spending all this money, right? Would you think that this guy was doing great because he was so deeply in debt and borrowing all this money? You know, or if you ran into a friend and you said, hey, how, how, are, how are you doing? And he goes, oh, you know, I just paid off my home mortgage. I fully funded my retirement accounts. I paid off all my credit card debt, right? That would be the guy that sounded like he was doing well. He's making enough money to get out of debt, right? Most Americans don't want to be in debt, right? You want to pay off your debt if you can, right? And so paying off your debt, building up your savings, that's a sign of success. That's a sign of a good economy. We don't have any of those signs in our economy. All of our signs are flashing problem, flashing recession. Right? Yet everybody wants to pretend, no, 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 we have the second longest recovery in, in U.S. history, and we don't see a recession anywhere in sight. That is the mentality of investors. Uh, that's the mentality of, of, of economists. Completely ridiculous. You know, by the way, too, speaking about records, the numbers just came out for first quarter borrowing in the United States. And the U.S. borrowed $488 billion total borrowing for the first quarter. Right? That is a record for the first quarter of any year. Right? Any year, including the years during the Great Recession. So we borrowed more in this first quarter, when the economy is supposedly booming, than we did in any first quarter in history when we were in recession and running deficits to stimulate the weak economy. Now, it isn't an all-time record. I think the record number was in the fourth quarter of 2008, right? And that was in the depths of the financial crisis. Everything was collapsing. And so that is still the record quarter. Uh, But we're going to break that record. I mean, we're going to break that record under the Trump administration. I believe whether we go into recession or not, obviously, if we go into recession, which I think is more likely, we're going to shatter that record, right? I mean, we're going to leave it in the dust. But even if we don't go into recession, then I think we're still going to Uh, break that record. The dollar, on the other hand, continued its bear market rally. Dollar index was up all day. In fact, we finished just below 92.50, I think 92.45. We were above 92.50 intraday. The strength of the dollar, I think, again, is being driven by the rise in bond yields. The yield on the uh, 10-year back up to 2.976, still below 3%, but I don't think it will remain below 3% for long. 30-year yields also rising 3.137. And again, I believe it is a false narrative to ascribe a stronger dollar to a rise in long-term interest rates. This is not indicative of a strong dollar. It is not going to be supportive of the dollar. Falling bond prices are basically falling IOUs for dollars. If bonds are weak, then why do you need dollars? Because people take dollars to buy bonds. Well, if you don't want to buy bonds, then what do you need the dollars for? 
right? They're a weak dollar and a weak bond market go hand in hand. I know people say, oh, rising interest rates are good for the dollar. That's rising short-term interest rates, which in theory are good for the dollar, not rising long-term interest rates. And in fact, short-term rates are rising, but I believe that that inflation is accelerating even faster. So real yields in the short run, I think, are still falling, despite the fact that the Fed has uh, pushed them up. But the bigger problem for the economy is that even though the real yields are falling, the debtors still have to pay the nominal price. They still have to make the interest payments on their debt, which is going to become increasingly difficult to do as the Fed raises rates, particularly for the U.S. government itself. Gold continues uh, to uh, pull back. Remember, we got above 1350 briefly, and we couldn't break out. And now here we are going back down to 1300 uh, Today, I think we were down around 1304 down like 8 or $9.00. But one thing that looks good to me are the gold stocks. Remember, the gold stocks were not moving up very much when gold was at 1350. Nobody wanted to bet on a breakout. Well, now that gold is back down near 1300, nobody wants to bet on a breakout either. In fact, more gold stocks were up today than down. I think the indexes were positive. And even yesterday, gold was down, but the gold stocks hung in there and a lot of stocks were positive. So I also think that people don't think there's a lot of downside. Most of the traders now in the gold stock uh, universe is not that many, but I think they're pretty much believe that we're in a range, that gold's not going anywhere. It's not going up, but it's not going down. And so all this trading is just noise. And so the traders are not overreacting uh, to the dips or the rips uh, in gold until something happens to break us out of this channel. Until we decisively move up or move down, uh, maybe we're just moving sideways in these stocks. But I think the smart money is is buying uh, these gold stocks into weakness. That's why they didn't go down today. Somebody was buying. Despite the weakness in gold prices, people were, were buying into the gold stocks. And I think the people who are selling in May and going away when it comes to the equity market, what they should be doing is buying gold in May and buying gold stocks in May, you know, go away from the equity market, but don't go away from the gold market or the gold stock market. You have to, you know, say hello to that market. I mean, a lot of the people have never been involved in these markets at all. And it's not about going to cash, just selling U.S. stocks and going to cash. If the U.S. dollar ends up collapsing, it's very likely, I think, that the dollar falls more than the stock market, which means in dollar terms, the stock market doesn't go down. So what good is it if you sell stocks and you, just, and you just pile in the dollars, which lose even more value than the stocks that you sold. So the smarter move is not to just go away from investing. It's to go away from U.S. markets, go away from U.S. dollars, U.S. dollars on assets, and load up on gold, gold stocks, and assets denominated in currencies against which the dollar is going to decline. Now, we also got more economic data that came out yesterday, not just personal income. We got Chicago PMI, uh, pending home sales, Dallas Fed. Uh, Today, we got ISM manufacturing, uh, PMI data, construction spending. Most of the data, in fact, almost all the data came in below estimates already, right? We're already getting some new estimates, still below estimates. Today, the FOMC began its uh, two-day weekend uh, meeting, two-day meeting, which concludes tomorrow, and they're going to announce their decision as to whether or not they are going to raise interest rates by another 25 basis points, or whether they are going to uh, leave rates unchanged. Now, 
the overwhelming odds are they're going to leave rates unchanged. I mean, nobody really expects the Fed to raise rates tomorrow. And so why would they do it? I mean, there's no reason to disappoint the markets. The markets would probably tank if the Fed were to move uh, tomorrow. So why risk it? Uh, but it's almost a sure thing. I mean, I think uh, 86% probability, so not quite a sure thing, that they're going to hike another quarter point in June. We'll see. I mean, it depends on how much selling in May we get in the stock market. I think that's going to be a big determinant of whether or not the Fed moves in June, where the stock market is and where the, the, the trajectory is. I'm not sure the economic data is as important because the economic data is weak. And it's going to continue to be weak. I mean, it's going to be weakening, but um, I don't know that it'll be weak enough to prompt the Fed. The market could be weak enough to do it, but they've been ignoring uh, weak economic data every time they've raised rates. I mean, we haven't had really strong data. We've had a lot of optimism that the data was going to get strong. And one of the reasons that the Fed wants to keep raising rates is because it doesn't want to you know, rain on the optimism parade because the Fed basically backed off the rate hikes. Uh, the markets would think, why? You know, what's wrong? I mean, what negative thing do you see out there? Clearly, they can't say there's not enough inflation. I mean, inflation numbers continue to, uh, you know, worsen. You know, we're clearly at at least 2%. You know, I noticed an article uh, uh, in Canada that gas prices in Canada are now at an all-time record high. See, a lot of people forget that it's not just, you know, Americans that are buying gas. Everybody buys gas, and it's priced in dollars, basically. So we look at oil, and we think, oh, oil's, you know, 70, I mean, $68 a barrel. That's not a record because it got up to 150 Well, when it was 150 the Canadian dollar was much higher than it is now. So when you take into effect the Canadian dollar price of oil, which is much higher now relative to that high, but then you add all the other factors that increase the price of gas, right, above the price of oil, because now you're, you're introducing taxes and the retail effect because, you know, the gas station has got to make money and they got to pay rent and they got to pay wages and all that stuff. Uh, the Canadians are actually paying the highest price in history in their money for, for gas. Now, you know, this should be great news, right, for Canada, for the Bank of Canada, because the whole reason that they've been keeping interest rates this low, if you look at all their justification, is that inflation is too low, right? Consumer prices are not rising fast enough uh, for comfort. So the Bank of Canada wants to keep rates low just to make sure that prices go up. Well, victory! Gas prices are an all-time record high. Thanks to the Bank of Canada's monetary policy, Canadians have never had to pay this much money to buy gas. So is it victory? Can they let rates go up now? Or are prices still not low enough? Do they have to make them go even higher? I mean, this is how ridiculous this whole thing is. To keep interest rates rock bottom, the justification is there's not enough inflation. Meanwhile, consumers are paying record high prices at the pump. You know, another place where consumers are paying record high prices is probably your restaurants, right? Not only are food prices going up. And the energy prices required to prepare the food and transport the food. But wages are going up, particularly minimum wages. And it's interesting because I was reading this article about uh, New York City and about a, a, an ad that a bunch of restaurants took out in Manhattan, basically protesting the minimum wage and demanding that the city change their law. Apparently, New York City passed a law that makes it illegal for restaurants to have a surcharge on a meal, right? You can charge, they can charge whatever they want for an individual menu item, but they can't 
have a surcharge, you know, just on top of whatever the bill is. And, you know, the reason that the restaurants want the surcharge is they want the surcharge to be, you know, minimum wage. You know, so we are adding this surcharge because of the increase in minimum wage. And so we're charging a 3% or a 5% surcharge so that we can cover the higher cost of the minimum wage. Now, the reason the city doesn't want that is because they don't want the bad publicity. They don't want the restaurants blaming them for the higher prices by putting a surcharge. And, of course, the restaurants... I guess they feel it's it's not as offensive to the customers by clearly labeling the cost. Well, look, we didn't want to raise prices, but we have to because, you know, the higher minimum wage. And so they want to kind of deflect the blame uh, from themselves. And maybe, you know, the, the higher prices, you know, it will go, go down, uh, you know, easier. Right. It'll be easier for their customers to swallow literally the price hikes if they're delineated by uh, some kind of, you uh, uh, surcharge at the end. So they're, they're saying, look, we're going out of business. We're laying people off. You know, we can barely survive. You gotta, you gotta change this law. Otherwise more restaurants are going out of business. But obviously the whole thing is ridiculous because just raise your prices. I mean, raise prices. You don't need the surcharge. You just raise the price of every menu on the item. And if you want to, you can put a little asterisk. I don't think this is illegal, although maybe I'm wrong, but you could probably put a little asterisk on the menu and say, Dear customer, you may have noticed that we jacked up our prices. The reason we did it is because of the increase in the minimum wage. And the minimum wage is going to go up again January of next year, so you can expect another hike. I mean, they can obviously do that, although that that also could piss off the customers if you, you know, if you point this out. But of course, you know, what do you expect? I mean, you read some of these stories and they say, you know, one of the unintended consequences of the increase in the minimum wage is higher prices. I mean, yeah, but... I mean, it's not even like it's an unintended consequence. It's a consequence that is a sure thing. It's not like it's some weird thing that nobody could have seen coming. I mean, it is the direct result. You increase the restaurant's costs, well, they're going to pass that on to the customers and higher prices. I mean, who else is going to pay for the higher minimum wage? I mean, it's always the consumer that pays for everything. Everything you buy, right, all the cost of what you buy, it's all in there. So to say this is some like, oh, crazy, who would have thought it, right? Oh, my God. An unintended consequence. I mean, yeah, they knew this going in. But, of course, the biggest unintended consequence of the increase in the minimum wage are all the people that lose their jobs, right? That's, that's baked in there, right? That's an even worse unintended consequence. In fact, the unintended consequences of raising the minimum wage are so bad that you shouldn't even raise it. In fact, the unintended consequences of the minimum wage are so bad that there shouldn't even be a minimum wage. You know, I read another article I put up on my Facebook page that in uh, Venezuela, the the minimum wage is going up another 150%. I think it's like the 10th increase, you know, in the last year. Like, oh, this is great. They keep increasing minimum wage. Yeah, but inflation is so bad that every time they increase the minimum wage, adjusted by inflation, you're still poorer than you were before the last increase. And of course, the higher minimum wages are also inflationary because now the government has to create the money to pay the higher minimum wages, which destroys the value of the increased wage that you just got. I mean, it's that basically, it's like a dog chasing its own tail, yet it never catches its tail, right? And this is what's going on. I mean, they'd be better off abolishing the minimum wage completely. But of course, you know, the, the politicians love to claim credit. They love raising minimum wage, right? They love giving people raises. But these aren't raises. I mean, think about a raise, right? Because the politicians are like, Americans deserve a raise. You know what? If you deserve a raise, you'd get one. 
right? I mean, raises come because you're doing a really good job, right? You're increasing your productivity and your employer, A, wants to reward you for increasing your productivity because if he rewards you, then you'll keep doing it, right? I mean, that's positive reinforcement. I just got a raise. Oh, I like a raise. I want another raise. Well, I'm going to keep doing that good thing that got me a raise, right? But another reason that employers want to give their workers wages is so they won't quit, right? Because as you're becoming more productive, not only are you becoming more valuable to your current employer, you're becoming more valuable to all the potential employers who are out there that you could work for. So if I'm employing somebody and I don't give them a raise as they're gaining skills and becoming more valuable, I am going to lose that employee. So I need to give them a raise. Because especially if I'm investing time and energy into helping to make them more productive, the last thing I want them to do is take that increased productivity and sell it to my competitor. So that's a raise, right? But if the government forces employers to pay everybody more money, no matter how lousy they're doing their job, that ain't a raise, right? (laughs) That's theft. That's extortion. That's the government putting a gun to an employer's head and saying, pay up. Now, of course, the employer... You know, it's not really a gun because the employer can say, well, I'm just going to fire the worker instead of paying up. And then the government is, oh, OK, that's fine. Right. Just, you know, just, you know, you're, you're allowed to fire people and pay them nothing. It's just that if you don't fire them, you've got to pay this higher minimum. And so people get fired. And so, you know, I'll just outsource. I'll automate. I'll, I'll, I'll use computers or I'll, I'll outsource uh, to India or something. These are the things that happen. And, yeah, they're unintended consequences, but they're obvious. Right? I mean, they're there. They're staring everybody at the face. I mean, you have to be a moron not to know that when you make hiring people more expensive, you're going to hire fewer people. And that when you drive up the cost of production, that the end product is going to be more expensive. Mm-hmm.